into a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> I am Maureen of Chicago. I'm Megan, daughter of Michael and Lisa. And, and we, we are, are burdened, burdened with, with glorious, glorious podcast. podcast. Welcome, foolish variants. We are your ghost hosts for tonight's podcast. We are here to talk about our favorite trickster god, Loki, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Now, I sense a disquiet among you listeners. Is this podcast actually staying on topic this time? Or are we going to go on yet another tangent for an entire episode? And consider this dismaying observation. For this episode, we have watched absolutely nothing to prepare, which offers you this chilling challenge to figure out what you are supposed to put on our TV Tropes page this week. So, in case you haven't figured it out by now, tonight is our Halloween spooktacular episode, which is basically us trying to figure out anything related to Loki and spooky stuff. (laughs) You may have also noticed that uh, we sound a bit different, and that is because I am once again recording side by side with Megan, rather than across time zones. We are once again live from New York. Yes, it's Sunday night. (laughs) (laughs) So you may have noticed that we already experienced a little bit of schedule slip. Um, That's another thing that you might consider a dismaying observation. However, we have a good reason for that, and that is this was New York Comic Con weekend. So yeah, we have both been extremely busy preparing for this joyous of weekends and we have been promoting uh the show to everyone on saturday i was sylvie and had the great luck of seeing a uh whole bunch of loki's for a photo shoot and i gave out our business cards and uh megan was miss minutes so to speak i i was in more of almost what you would call a miss minutes disney bound which is when that's you know, because outside of the Halloween season, they don't actually allow adults to cosplay at Disneyland lest they get mistaken for the actual uh, characters that they have there. So people, a lot of people have come up with this way of basically dressing on theme, but without being in a costume called Disney bounding. And that was essentially what I was doing at con because I came up with one good idea for what something that could be considered an actual Miss Minutes cosplay only for Maureen to send me a photo of someone from Dragon Con doing pretty much exactly what I'd had in mind. And at that point, I was like, well, I had one good idea. And that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did think that it was uh, interestingly on theme that the group of Lokis that we uh, encountered... Maureen was the only Sylvie there, and that felt very accurate to the show. (laughs) We had 
literally, I want to say a good 15 or 16 Lokis in one group and only one Sylvie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's good that you mentioned uh, the concept of Disney bounding and why that had to be a thing because I was talking uh, just a few hours ago to uh, a Thor cosplayer who explained that he actually got kicked out of the Disney store at Times Square because he looked too much like him. Wow. <laughs> wow. I... That, you know what, that really says a lot considering, I'm pretty sure, didn't you and I get to go into the Disney store in our Elsa and Anna costumes a few years ago? We might have? I feel like we, I feel like we might have. But that's, that's impressive now yeah. that you say that. Just, I, I'm, I'm sorry, you might give the children the wrong idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm just imagining them putting like a, like a Simpsons No Homers Club sign oh on the my, door. But no, he arrived in the Disney store dressed as Thor and almost immediately workers were like, sir, you need to leave. <laughs> Although, you know what? Now that you say that, there is, of course, a chance... There is, of course, a chance that they might have thought that he was a Times Square photo person who was intruding on the store. Because if you've never been to Times Square and if you've never paid close enough attention to any of the photos of it, there are a lot of people out there who wear character costumes and do photos with people for tips. And a lot of the time, these are the worst mascot suits you can possibly imagine. And a lot of the time, the people wearing those will actually walk around with them heads popped up it's like there, there's absolutely no pretense that it's no. anything but a costume <laughs> but every once in a while you do get people who are in really good um character costumes there's there's a really good batman that hangs out there sometimes and a few times i've seen a really good danny devito penguin oh. of all things <laughs> which i mean i i guess that's one of those things about like you know i I, I don't know, do what you love and, and you'll never work a day in your life. I don't know. But now that you say that, it might, if that was how they were reacting, they might very well have thought that he was like a photo Thor that Perhaps. was going, well, you know, a, a while ago, like 10 years ago, you know, um, there were a couple of times when we were just walking through Times Square, literally trying to get to a Starbucks that a couple of times, um, there were cops that were asking uh, Toby if he had a permit oh, okay. to take photos out there because um, I guess because the Times Square photo people are a notoriously weird and shady bunch that they actually have to like have some authorization to do the photos out there. That's interesting because like barely a couple of years ago, I took several photos uh, dressed up as spider guan at Times Square with no hassle whatsoever. It might have been that you were maybe maybe you were just like so ostent so quickly posing for photos or something because that was the thing people kept trying to stop Toby for photos and the mm. thing is is that he was just trying to get through to the Starbucks at that point he was carrying the helmet under his arm and everything but people kept wanting photos so he would stop and like kind of right. awkwardly <laughs> you, you can't see it because we're we're sitting together but I kind of like leaned over and gave a thumbs up so it might have been just something like that I think that. Um, I think that like the local, because there actually is a precinct that just like focuses on Times Square. They have like a little police station there and everything. They might have just been like, okay, we didn't authorize a Loki. <laughs> wow. Once again, the cops were having to come with the TVA. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Well, you know, that there we go. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, we had a really great time at the convention. I actually uh, won a prize as Sylvie. Uh, there was a costume contest, and I was one of the winners. And because the after party was <laughs> sponsored by Dune, not so much Warner Brothers or Legendary, but just sponsored by Dune, I got a special uh, sneak preview ticket to see Dune, which is in just one theater in New York City, which I do not live in. <laughs> Brought to you by the Spice Milan. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if you, you know, if you can have if you can have parties sponsored by White Claw, why can't you have parties <laughs> sponsored by Spice? I, I now now I'm just imagining like you know when they have like the sponsored White Claw girls. Except they're wearing like the still suits and and trying very, very hard to make the idea of a suit that recycles all of your body moisture into drinkable water seem sexy and appealing. And there you go. Congratulations, Maureen. I made a dune joke. <laughs> a few weeks ago, she I, I made a dune joke to Maureen and she was like and she was like, is this going to be the new thing that I barely get that you keep making jokes about? And I was like, no, I, wa- I just wanted to make a, um, a Leto the second joke because he's the one that turns into a gigantic worm. And now the thing is, is that every so, <laughs> is that like at least every couple of days, Maureen is sending me a Leto the second joke. I'm not sending you a Leto the second joke every day. I said like roughly every other day. And I mean, and it's usually just very minor things like, you know, Leto the second voice released the foam or something like that, or, or just some kind of joke about gigantic worm guy, because that that's his thing. If it, You know, I, I think we talked about this once before. Remember the episode of Billy and Mandy where she turned into a giant worm in the far future? That was a, that was that entire episode was a God Emperor of Dune joke. <laughs> I just find his character as a concept inherently funny of just like how grotesque you could make like a character in the sci-fi genre. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm pretty sure that like the only piece of Dune fan art I ever did was a picture of him wearing shutter shades that says, watch the throne. (laughs) (laughs) Now I just really want to see a bunch of slutty Dune cosplayers called the Spice Racks. (laughs) I mean, I, I think the funniest thing about everybody immediately jumping to making the Leto the second jokes, other than the fact that yes, he is a he is a giant worm guy. Um, I mean, I the other day I put one of the original book covers of him through FaceApp to make him smile. And I, I'm waiting for an excuse to unleash that on the populace. But I think my favorite thing about this is that they're just like, oh, new Dune movie. Let me know when the guy turns in. And it's like, guys, you're not going to see the giant worm for like probably at least another two or three movies. That, he, he is, he is Timothy Chalamet's character's son, 3,500 years in the future. Um, I know that they did make a TV miniseries out of one of the sequels, but it was before he turns into a giant worm guy. But, but I have seen a lot of tweets about like, nobody told me that they made, uh, that they made a children of Dune miniseries and James McAvoy plays Leto the second 
please tell me you get to see him turn into a giant worm. And no, no, you don't. You only get to see the point where he has like baby sandworms sticking all over his body from what I've seen. Then what is the point? Honestly, that's having like having a Godzilla movie and it doesn't show up until like hour afterwards. Okay, because the, the thing is, is that I, I say this as somebody who read as far as God Emperor and afterward I was just like, this was a lot. This, I mean, it, it wasn't quite... It, it wasn't the, wow, this is a part of my life I'm never going to get back again feeling like I had when I actually read the book of American Psycho. But I definitely was just kind of like, I can't possibly imagine this series going anywhere else that's not going to be a little bit of a letdown after it all climaxing with this guy turning himself into a giant worm, living another like 3,000 years and basically going all he who remains on everybody's asses. And like, I, I, you know, I was really just like, I understand that there's more books in this series, but why would I ever want to read them? I, I, <laughs> I, I feel like a giant worm guy who just keeps making copies of one of his dad's best friends to keep him company for like a thousand years. And every time one of them dies, he's just like, well, time to make another Duncan. That's what happens to Jason Momoa's character, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, he, he's the one person who got signed to this movie who is just going to be set for life. Oh my God. They, he just, he just, and he already has that Aquaman coin. So he's already got, he's already got the Aquaman coin. And if they keep going on this, eventually they're going to pick somebody to play Timothy Chalamet's kid and he's going to roll around and get himself covered in sandworms and start like fusion dancing with them and then they're going to make a sequel where where he is worm and there's going to be plenty more Jason Momoa's where that came from I'm just shocked that I have yet to read any Twitter posts or Tumblr posts or what have you of like saying, haven't we all just wanted to like completely forgo our humanity and turn into a giant space worm? Like, isn't he the most relatable character in the whole series? <laughs> isn't that the pinnacle of I can't adult today, I can't even human today? I mean, it is really borne out by the fact that one of the one of the exchanges made for turning himself into a giant worm is, I'm not even kidding, he can't move himself because the thing is, is that it's almost more like he is a human that is being subsumed by the worm body. Like, that's kind of what it is. That's why they, that's why in all the illustrations, he's just like this like grotesque little part of a, of a human body with the arms sticking out of the front and the rest is worm. And that means that they actually have to like put him on his special worm wagon and like draw him around so that the populace can see him. And anyway, that I guess that's that's one way to do um, horrible things for world peace. Where the hell is that costume spirit, Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> I I guess I guess it's kind of a, just a pity that that Beetlejuice on Broadway hasn't reopened yet, so they can't stick one of their. <laughs> One of their, they can't stick, you know, Alex Brightman in the front of the the giant worm puppet and just be like, "Hey guys, check out my Dune cosplay." Oh like, my god! <laughs> or or have the movie Dune, and there's a giant snake here. <laughs> They're both Warner Brothers IP, so it totally works. Oh my god! Oh my god! Um. 
Well, you know what? We we definitely did not survive our own going off on a massive tangent challenge. Although, to get back on things, I now really want to see Timothy Chalamet's uh, character finding an old man variant of him played by Kyle MacLachlan. Oh my god. Well, you know what? You do eventually see the character, because without going into full detail... He does eventually become so disgusted by what he's accidentally inspired that he kind of becomes like a blind prophet wandering around in the desert. You could literally just have him have him at that stage be played by Kyle MacLachlan, who played the same character in the David Lynch Dune movie. And just, you know what, just just go full. So, you know, it's, it's like how Paul Rubens has now played two different versions of the Penguin's father. Oh yeah, because <laughs> he he was also on Gotham. It, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the thing is is that it wasn't the same character right, by right. any stretch, because um, the version on Gotham was actually distinguished by being a really loving father who wanted to be part of his life, except because that show was even more off the rails than this podcast apparently is tonight. Um, you know, it was actually like his horrible second family or whatever that that ruined that for them, mm-hmm. but. Um, Wow. <laughs> so it, I, I'm trying to think of how we were even supposed to segue back to that. And we might just have to be like, anyway. <laughs> so it is very much a Halloween season out here. And uh, do you have any idea of what your costume is going to be, Megan? You know, I'm still figuring that out. And odds are very good that I'm going to have at least two of them because my friend Jess, who is also our transcriptionist, is going to be visiting New York City from California at the end of the month. And in addition to whatever we're doing on Halloween proper, we are also going out to the Long Island edition of the Great Jack-O-Lantern Blaze that Saturday night. So I might very well, if I can afford it, end up with a costume for both of them. I was definitely thinking of doing uh, Mrs. Lovett for at least one of them. Nice. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, I guess we'll kind of figure it out as it gets there. You know, in past years, I've kind of just reused um, my con costume as a Halloween costume, but lately I've wanted to be more mm-hmm. on theme. And one thing that kind of appealed to me about the Mrs. Lovett thing is that I've noticed just from, like, the different ways that I've had to just kind of scrape up my hair in the morning to keep it out of my face, it's been like, Oh yeah, my hair's long enough. I can just use my own hair for this now, <laughs> and that's that's definitely appealing. I, I I really enjoyed that I I didn't have to wear a wig this Comic Con. Although God knows Maureen put up with a couple of them. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm definitely uh, thinking of also doing two possible costumes as well. Uh, most likely Lady Dimitrescu, just because I really want to exploit the fact that I am six feet in the right pair of heels. <laughs> and uh, especially assuming I can find uh, a possible date to agree to red face paint a Sokovian fortune teller. <laughs> <laughs> Although, who knows if you're going to, if you're going to want to get a date at that point, because... Maureen had had a very <laughs> had a had a very nice ending to her Comic Con weekend, even if it was one that we we would never have predicted would roll out that way. <laughs> well, I didn't meet any Lokis as Sylvie, but I did meet a Thor, <laughs> <laughs> which which really is 
that that is a plot twist bordering on a role reversal around here. Um, my first response when uh, she texted me about this was to muse that if I end up with some kind of like lanky dramatic goth out of this, it's gonna be like it, it's it's gonna be like opposite planet around here. <laughs> She did send me some video of what the after party was like because I I am not much of an after party person. Um, apparently, it involves people in costumes um, going fucking hard. Do we like the party? We like to party by Vanga Boys, um, and uh, people using their prop weapons as a uh, ping pong paddles. I guess I guess that's what happens at these parties. It's you know that that's that's the underground. Yeah. Well, I think it's the raw energy of being withheld from this type of shit for almost a year now. You know, I would think so too. But at the same time, I I just I remember looking at this last night and thinking like, wow, this looks just chaotic. Followed immediately like, wow, everybody on Twitter who always insists that the after parties after cons are almost without exception, the kinkiest things ever, is full of shit. (laughs) Unless you want to think of it as being some kind of, like, you know, Watchmen, Night Owl, where's my mojo unless I'm in my super suit type thing. But it's just, I've seen so many, like, and you know the thing about kinky people is they're all big nerds, and it's like, you know what, I I don't doubt that, but at the same time, it's just kind of like, Again, it from what you sent me, it seemed a little bit less like a pleasure dungeon and more like, you know, people in Spider-Man suits going really hard to We Like to Party. <laughs> well, you really need to know where to look because that was pretty much open to the general public and certain hotels. Like I said, I don't <laughs> doubt that that's a thing. I mean, I had a disastrous first date once that turned into an only date that was, it, it It played out like an SNL sketch version of the scene in Taxi Driver where he takes the girl to a porno on their first date. Except instead of going to a porno, we went to a documentary about the intersection between the kink community and the Dungeons and Dragons community. absolutely no shame to anybody involved in either of those scenes i i personally think dungeons and dragons actually sounds like a lot of fun and given the opportunity i would probably love to get involved in a group for that and you know maybe i'm not into that particular type of kink as far as i can tell but you know more power to you if you are and i mean that very genuinely you know just because it's not something i'm personally into i i don't judge it at all but I do judge him for thinking that bringing me to that on a first date was, was a good idea. Like I, like I said, it really... I hadn't seen Taxi Driver when that happened, but when that came up, I just... That scene came up, and I just kind of like had to pause the movie, and I just stared out into space because, like I said, it really felt like I was in some kind of like SNL sketch version of that. <laughs> like, who does that? Ah. <laughs> uh. So, do we have any Thor or Loki-related Halloween tales to share? I mean, I did, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, so I don't need to go into it. I did once help a kid make a Loki costume for Halloween on very (laughs) short notice. Um, I do have one very weird story. Okay. So, a few years ago, to try to augment my nanny income, I was a postmate, which was a really bad idea because... 
I don't drive and I don't have a bike. So, um, you know, so you just have to imagine me just hightailing it all over the place on foot with these bags of food. And at one point I actually had a delivery to make to, um, a house, a, a real existing house in Greenwich village, a, a literal single family house that I had picked a long while ago to be a major location in that RP board that I'd mentioned before. And I'm not even kidding. I, it was, uh, like a day or two before Halloween, people were throwing parties and stuff. And I had a big delivery from, um, I think the restaurant's called the sugar factory. It's in Chelsea, something like that. Um, I brought it over there and the door was answered by a Thor. And on top of that, I could see sort of into the parlor of the house. There was a sofa there, like it had been kind of made into their living room. And there was a Loki sitting on the couch who was just kind of watching me as I was like staring, like what the hell is happening, looking at me really knowingly. And this was a location that had been used for, for Odin bro shenanigans in the RP board several times. Like I, I don't know what happened, but it, it, it was, it was, it, it was the most, you know, Oh no, I wish too hard. And now it's real. <laughs> like, like Homer Simpson with the duckling. Oh my God. Ah, well now that you bring it up, I feel like since technically Loki has appeared on the Simpsons in two different versions now, might I add, because they just recently had Alan Cumming voice, um, the mythological Loki, which for one thing is a fantastic Alan Cumming Loki redemption arc. Yes. Because <laughs> he he definitely deserved to do, get to do a better version of the character than he got to do in uh, Son of the Mask. Yeah, there is an entire subgenre of bad movies just called Alan Cumming is the only one who understood the assignment. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I, I mean, and the thing is, is that I, I feel like as far as mythological Loki goes, especially especially when he was younger, he would have been a fantastic choice for a oh, lot of yeah. like Norse mythology Loki stuff. So the fact that they actually let him voice, even if it was on The Simpsons, an, a Norse mythology Loki who actually, I have to admit, had one of the most interesting character designs I have ever seen for a Norse mythology Loki and maybe it's because they already did the MCU Loki short, but I think they did a really good job at not leaning on the um, the MCU version of the character at all. Which, honestly, even a lot of, like, would-be Norse pagan, like, mm -hmm. knickknacks and stuff that you can buy, they, they really lean on it. They're really big on giving him, like, the goat-horned helmet and stuff like that, and... There is no attestation for that whatsoever. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't think the horned helmet thing was really a thing for Norse people in reality in oh, general. Oh, not at all. Yeah, like, I, I'm pretty sure that that comes entirely from, like, the ring cycle. Oh, no. And how it was usually costumed. And no, it was, no, like, I went to the Viking Museum. Oh, there we go. Uh, and, like, as soon as you walk in... They say, how did we get this image of, and it showed like a bunch of like uh, sports fans painting their faces yellow and blue and having the Viking horns. And it's like, there's never been a point in recorded history that any of the actual Vikings wore horned helmets. And the earliest instance is Wagner operas. Well, that was what I was yeah. saying is that, I, is that it came really from costuming. Well, and for that matter, a lot of, I've having seen pictures of those from back in the day, 
It seems like the horn thing actually took a while to even take, you know, because it seems like mainly if you look at some of the early pictures, the main thing that you see reflected in any way, shape or form um, in the modern iconography is that a lot of the time they would put um, the, the singers playing Valkyries in winged helmets, mm. which at least iconography-wise make more sense, even if that's not mm -hmm. something that they... Because that at least makes a... The, you know, it makes sense to put, like, an actual old Germanic helmet on, you know, a warrior goddess, and then add wings. You know, especially because, um, you know, in terms of classical mythology, Mercury usually mm -hmm. has a winged helmet. Right. That sort of thing. So that's, that I can sort of understand. I still have yet to figure out where the horns came in. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so, so going back to the Simpsons, uh, we thought, uh, we thought of our, our favorite Treehouse of Horror specials and why do we always go back to them? And I've thought about it very, very quickly because, I think it was like part five or part six, but uh, it was the episode where uh, they had the Shining parody. Oh yeah, that's that's got to be my favorite too. And just like for that episode, it's I keep on going back to it, and it just never ceases to amaze me just how fast the jokes are and how every single one of them lands. <laughs> You won't get sued. I can't do the accent. I cannot <laughs> do. I, 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 I struggle with a Scottish accent in general. I really can't do a Groundskeeper Willie accent. Just don't read my thoughts between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. That's Willie time. <laughs> yeah. I, I like how much that was almost tipping over into like Maurice Chevalier territory. <laughs> Like, like you, you, you were, you kind of, have you ever been so Scottish you suddenly turn into Lumiere? No! Because that's kind of where you were going with that. Oh my god. <laughs> um, I mean, there's also the, um, the Sound of Thunder. Oh, I know. Time and Punishment. Which yeah. I, I honestly think it is one of, that short is one of the funniest things the simpsons has ever done it's just like an absolutely brilliant premise of homer having a magical toaster that can have him travel back in time and he always screws it up except for the one time that he manages to actually fix everything but doesn't stay long enough to realize that he fixed everything um and that's actually in the same, that's in the same special as The Shining, though, isn't it? Yes, it's The Shining parody and Time and Punishment. And then uh, the teachers try to eat the kids in the cafeteria. Right. And then it all ends with a parody of a chorus line. Yeah. they're but... all inside out. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, as far as as far as the the t so the sound of thunder is the Ray Bradbury story mm -hmm. that that's riffing on that's that was I could just couldn't remember that they called it time and punishment, but um, I think I might have even used it in reference to this show to the Loki show a couple of times, the bit with with uh, with Maggie popping out her pacifier <laughs> and saying in James Earl Jones's voice this is indeed a disturbing universe, <laughs> I. I think about that all the time. 
I think about the the running joke with Willie getting murdered in each of the segments. <laughs> the way that uh, Dick Halloran gets gets killed in The Shining. Um, and think- then finally, oh, I'm getting bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and for that matter, um, The Shining feels very different to me watching it now as an adult. And it's not because, like, you'd think that this is going to be like, oh, because now I've experienced what it's being like stuck inside. Or now I've lived someplace where I end up cold for the entire winter. Or possibly even because now I'm old enough to drink. And the answer is no, it's none of that. It's the fact that I only belatedly discovered after I'd seen the movie, but I'd forgotten what most of the score sounds like. And then somebody in Watchmen fandom decided to helpfully make a playlist that was things that Adrian Veidt mentions listening to. And it turns out that one of the, that, that uh, Christoph Penderecki, a lot of his stuff is The Shining. Like, like the soundtrack, for, like a lot of the stuff that's not Wendy Carlos or like weird echoing jazz shit is, is just Penderecki. And I mean, and it's basically just like abstraction and music because most of what you hear from that is actually from an Easter mass. Like, <laughs> like the, that, the one that has like the loud clattering. Cause I thought of it like when Halloran gets the ax to the back and there's that loud clattering. And then there's just what sounds like all the overlapping mumbling voices. That is, that is actually basically like, if I understand correctly, that's actually like the hallelujah. He is risen part of the mass. It just sounds like that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so with that in mind, I mean, I guess we might as well also, since this is turning into this kind of episode, um, what are some of your favorite horror movies in general and not just uh, Simpsons related? Well, that's a good question because for the longest time, I just really never watched that many horror movies just because uh, as a kid, they were kind of like the forbidden genre because of getting nightmares and all that good shit. But um, it wasn't until actually way, way later in adulthood that uh, I uh, really became aware of like what I like to call art house horror or like things with like way deeper meanings or like things that have like, uh, this movie isn't scary because you're in an attic uh, with a maniac with a chainsaw. This movie is scary because it ties directly into the horror that is... Uh, either being a woman or being a person of color or being someone who's part of an oppressed group and it just really taps into that fear that people live with every day and just really magnifies it and gives it like a proper form. So it was really around the time where it was like uh, It Follows and The Babadook that just got so many rave reviews. Oh, God. And that's when I'm like, oh, this is actually really good and all the scares make sense. And I just started uh, watching things like uh, The Witch and uh, what was another one? There was another like indie. Oh, yeah. Of course, Midsummer. Uh, and then I started like going like rewind of like other movies like okay I'm gonna give like the older ones a chance. Yeah, I mean it's it's actually weird to even think of Midsummer in that context because obviously it is a horror movie. I mean even if it's mostly a psychological horror movie, but also because it you know like The Wicker Man, it's that very specific type of folk horror 
that is tied to like brightness and summer and the idea of making that just absolutely horrifying. So when you mentioned that in there, it was kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, that <laughs> does fit. Now, see, I, um, I got exposed to a lot of horror movies as a teenager. Um, so I definitely saw some of the older stuff first. Um, I think actually, I mean, I know that it's not a horror movie, horror movie, but I mean, I think I've mentioned on here before that um, my favorite movie, like literally, I think probably my favorite movie of all time is Beetlejuice, um, which is one of a small handful of movies that I am just down to watch whenever, however many times. Um, I'm, uh, I saw Poltergeist for the first time when I was about 12 or 13. Oh. I love that movie. That is such a good movie. Oh my god. It is... I mean, watching it as an adult, it's all over the place, but that really just makes it that much scarier. And the thing about Poltergeist is it's something that you don't even realize until, like, way long after the fact, but it's a legitimately scary movie, and it stays with you and has such great imagery, and yet... No one really dies by the end because it's a movie that's smart enough to know you don't have to kill off characters to still have them all be victims in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which really adds a lot of really haunting context to um, how much tragedy was attached to the movie behind mm -hmm. the scenes, you know, with both of the actors playing the daughters dying pretty young and pretty horribly. Um but that's, that's an excellent point. And really, if anything, the biggest question, which I, I, guess, I guess technically the answer is just because so many of them attach themselves to Carol Ann. I think really the biggest question is how come the rest of the neighborhood <laughs> didn't end up the way their house did? Because um, it's, it's pretty much the quintessential you know, you built this on a burial ground and... Well, have you ever noticed that literally every single haunted house story has never had two or three haunted houses in the same neighborhood? It's always only one and only one. It's just the way that that movie just escalates as it goes on and the fact that there are so many different levels to the haunting going on because there's also the perfectly normal ghosts that are basically just passing through the house. But, you know... There's a shot toward the beginning where, I, if I remember correctly, the mom in the family is talking on the phone and she looks away from the kitchen table for a moment. And when she looks back, the chairs are all stacked yes. up. And there's, you don't even hear the chairs move. She mm -hmm. just looks over and gasps and the chairs have all been stacked up like that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that manages to be in the same movie as whatever the hell it is that comes out of the closet at the end. <laughs> and, and, you know, and for that matter that shot where they make the um they make one of the paranormal investigators think he's clawing off his own face in the oh, mirror so scary <laughs> at this point this movie is like more than 30 years old so i feel fairly confident in in discussing this and you know what for that matter i didn't think the remake was that bad oh i and um and it's especially funny watching it as uh, somebody who's now in um, in terror fandom because instead of um, instead of a direct analog to uh, like it's not a remake it's it's like a spiritual remake it it like the same idea of a family little kid send you know all of that um, going on in there but it's not 
it's not shot for shot and it's better for that but um it's it's very funny being in terror fandom and watching this movie now because the rough equivalent to the Tangina character, except he's there for more of the movie, is actually like a paranormal investigator show host played by Jared Harris. And it's really funny because the teenage daughter has a massive crush on him. Oh my. Which is really funny when you've spent time in terror fandom now. Ah. <laughs> uh, so, uh... Every October now, for a bit, I've been trying to like watch at least one horror movie that I haven't seen before. And uh, lately, I've been looking at all like the classic '80s stuff, like Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Friday the Thirteenth. And I realized probably my favorite uh, '80s horror franchise would have to be Hellraiser because that is just good imagery, good performances, and like just really strong atmosphere. Just like, I, it's so rare to see like surreal horror and just like really play with like nightmarish imagery and just really capturing that feeling of being trapped in like a world that just stays with you. And much like I really expected to hear about at um, at con after parties, it's it's also what happens when you find kinksters who won't leave you alone. <laughs> yes. I, I'm sorry. I really I really want to clarify that the joke was there, and this is not in any way an anti kink podcast. And I am so sorry if it's coming off like that's the impression because we're really not. We're we're really not. We promise. But on the other hand, it's you've got to think of it as being a little bit like the Chris Fleming polyamory video. It's it's have have you ever seen that? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's it, this is to kink, it, as the Chris Fleming video is to polyamory, except it's a full length horror movie. Or, or, or rather, I should say, not not to kink, but like to like extreme BDSM stuff. Except in this case, it's so extreme that they might just you know rip off no, all of your skin. No, uh, Hellraiser is very good at capturing the real horror that is being in a room with people that kink shame. Only they shame you for not being into their kink. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! I, I. I I mean, I always think now of this this absolutely gigantic kid that worked in the haunted house at Six Flags at the same time I did, who they would just send wandering through the house in a pinhead um, costume. But that would mean on the really empty nights that he would just come kind of walking through quietly. And we, by the time, you know, I was in there as a, as a scare actor as well. I, I knew who it was. But he would just walk by and just turn to us and silently give like a peace sign or something walking by. And we would just be like, oh, hey, sup? restart this so apparently they're doing a hellraiser reboot for hulu i think clive barker might be involved again he is okay well that's cool and they actually they got um jamie clayton is going to be playing the new pinhead or analog or whatever which um which is particularly because i mean i read the novella that it's based on and um even though the character's gender is very ambiguous it is mentioned that pinhead in the book has a very feminine voice Mm. so that's that's a cool choice to make for this and you know i've been seeing a handful of people that i like twitter mutuals and stuff commenting like 
okay, but, you know, just because it's a woman, I, you know, I hope that they don't, like, pretty the character up. I, you know, I want her to still be ugly. But the thing is, is that, you know what? I don't think the original Pinhead's ugly. He's just really no. unnatural looking. Yeah, that was all the point. And I, for one, welcome our girl boss Cenobite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know... <laughs> So, you know, so basically it's just these these are the people that if you accidentally invite them to your party by solving a Rubik's Cube, they might very well rip your skin off and just be like, whoops, isn't that what you wanted? Um, y- you know, that really is boiling it down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, to be okay, you know what? Let, let's give them some credit. On the other hand, if they get there and they're just like, oh, hey, you're the one that solved this Rubik's Cube? Okay, did, did you actually want to solve the Rubik's Cube? No, this other person made me do it. Okay, we're going to go take their skin off. Really sorry to bother you. That's what makes them so appealing. They have standards. They just don't attack anyone. It's always like they have, in a weird way, they're almost like the fair folk. Yeah, no, this is, yeah. I, I They have their own set of rules. It's just... Very, very foreign, but you can understand them if you want to. They're they're the fair folk, except they except they came from a Judas Priest album instead of the safety dance video. <laughs> <laughs> but um speaking of body horror, let's um let let's let's talk about just how much body horror there is in a lot of the Loki myths. Yeah. Because that's something that I have actually seen people asking for. They say that they want to include that in the show. And to that, I say, I mean, this is the MCU. They don't even let people fuck in the MCU. Um, like, are, are are they really... Do you, I, I, I don't know if they're really going to, like... I feel like if they ever, you know, sew his mouth shut in the show, it's probably going to be a little bit more like when they, you know, when, you know, the part in Beetlejuice where, oh, where yeah. he, where he shuts Barbara up by like conjuring a metal plate, sealing her mouth shut, but it's treated essentially as though she, her mouth is duct taped shut. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Like I, I kind of anticipate it being something like that if they were to do it, because I mean, they're not going to go full Handmaid's Tale stitched mouth in this one i i like especially because like who's who's gonna do it one of the like is it gonna be like who would do it is it like kang i mean because you know what as absolutely horrible a father as odin is let's be real odin is not somebody who would just be like okay so his mouth shut yeah it's like there's a reason why in my loki fanfic i include that scene but it's only a nightmare he has of what he assumes would happen if he ever returned to Asgard after what he did in the first Thor film. <laughs> I I definitely referenced it happening um, as far as that RP thing went, but it wasn't... It, it was actually the kind of thing that, like, almost started a war over it because that was his kid. And, like, again, you know, not winning any Father of the Year awards anytime soon, but still, a man's got to have some standards... And if anything, it really just made Sif dislike Loki even more because it's the kind of thing that really ends up, you know, all of a sudden, every like, yeah, he he did just go through way worse than she did. But on the other hand, this never would have happened if she didn't cut off her fucking hair. Mm-hmm. Like, that was kind of the approach <laughs> we were going there. Which, um, 
I, sh- I should mention in this that it happened under different circumstances than seems to have now happened in the MCU. Mm-hmm. And that I had not been writing it under the idea that they had slept together. I had been writing this happening when they were about 14 years old, which was also part of why it led to like an actual war because holy shit, that is a child that you just did this to. Ah. Uh. So would you consider it body horror, at least from an outsider's perspective of Loki turning himself into a mare? Oh, God, probably. I mean, you know, it's depending on the retelling that actually even seems to be treated as body horror. And I mean, I've I've even read a few retellings that seem to indicate that the situation was actually fairly traumatic for him um which i mean i guess i guess makes sense if the idea was really just to like distract the you know i mean if you really think about it all the way through there is you know definitely an element of sexual assault there if you really want to think it through that way although impossible i was about to be like i mean at least then you would have the knowledge of like okay but it was you know a non fully sentient animal but in some ways wouldn't that just make it worse yeah (laughs) like you know a lot of you know i've seen a lot of retellings that basically just have them be just like by the way where's loki we need to thank him for his help and like loki's not there and it's just like oh okay and then like 10 months later he shows up just like you would not believe the the 10 (laughs) months i just fucking had and there and nobody really notices or cares about that because Oh, look, it's a little freak horse. How cute. <laughs> you know, here here comes the cutest little horse imaginable, except with like, you know, spider legs or whatever. Except it's somehow still really cute because baby horse. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I really can't imagine that that would have been the case in the MCU to begin with. Honestly, like... <laughs> and if it was i actually do kind of imagine it probably going under the category of of just shut up you would not believe the 10 months i just had i would also put it under the category of it maybe if not for him then certainly body horror for any man having to think about it for more than two seconds of uh loki getting involved with a piece of twine and a goat oh god yeah (laughs) although you know what though let, let's give the mythological Loki some credit for that because he did it on purpose to oh, try to I make know. somebody laugh. But I'm just trying to imagine, like, for any man thinking about that, <laughs> that would be absolutely body horror for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, there's a myth where he manages to get um, the frost giant goddess, uh, Scotty, to laugh finally after she hasn't been able to, but he actually ties. Um, one end of a piece of twine around his balls and he ties the other one to a goat and you can imagine what happens um and you know i i personally think that like the wildest part of this story is having finally looked at some of the eddas and been frequently reminded that you know it doesn't get carried over into a lot of adaptations of the like the actual myths or anything but it's indicated several times that he's supposed to be just about the most beautiful man you've ever seen. (laughs) And so all I can think of is just, you know, you just have to imagine the most beautiful man you've ever seen just, you know, 
possibly even like indicated to be borderline feminine beautiful according to some of the so just think of a be shown in johnny knoxville oh my god (laughs) this is the goat trick jesus christ (laughs) i am loki and welcome to jackass Yeah, I mean, to the point where I actually, it gets so emphasized. I, I mean, and Neil Gaiman actually remembered to put this in um, his retelling book. It's really emphasized that um, the mythological Loki is supposed to be um, just absolutely gorgeous to the point where I think the getting his mouth sewn shut being like the start of darkness for him, I think it's supposed to at least partially come from the fact that his mouth is scarred forever. Mm-hmm. Which would make a lot of sense because he is frequently indicated to be very attractive, very vain about it. And, you know, and he's very proud of both his ability to talk himself out of any situation as well as that. And so that's kind of an assault on both of those. Ah. Which leads us to the ultimate in body horror that is pure, uh... Eli Roth levels of degrading <laughs> of Loki's ultimate fate being tied with his son's intestines to a stone tablet and uh, having a giant snake drip venom on his face for all eternity. Yeah. Yeah, which the... That is actually something that the comics have referenced a few times. It comes in very prominently in um, in Blood Brothers, and it's the kind of thing that actually, you know, it, that's actually sort of what get. There's a part in um, the Blood Brothers comic where Carnilla, the Norn Queen, actually does something almost like a much more supernatural and expansive version of almost the TVA file scene, of just being like, "This is what happens to you in every single timeline." There is absolutely no escaping what you are. I mean, and she's not even she's not even saying this to him to be cruel. It's like he asked to see, and all he sees is just this this absolute cavalcade that it's always going to be him and Thor trying to kill each other, and he's always going to lose. And his ultimate fate in most of the ones where he doesn't just get killed outright is to end up under that serpent. And unlike in the actual myths, there's never even any indication that he's ever going to get away from it, even to end the world. Mm-hmm. Although I do find it interesting that uh, a lot of Norse scholars have pointed out that that very concept of uh, Loki's ending seems very much more likely as a uh, Christianized addition later on. That would make sense, especially because it, you know, it ends with such a thorough prediction of what's going to come after. It's very clearly like an Adam and Eve variant, complete with them having names that start with A and E. Um, yeah, I, I don't actually know if that would necessarily have been what they ultimately predicted. And I, and for that matter, the whole, you know, and then when it drips in his eyes, that's when earthquakes happen. Like, that almost seems like too convenient of an explanation because for one thing, how long would that mean in between earthquakes? And like, how often do they get earthquakes up there where this story would have been originating? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of scholars uh, have pointed out 
that uh, Loki was always meant uh, in the original myths uh, to be more uh, more neutral, really, than anything, of simply a force for chaos that could was capable of good or evil, and it was only in the later uh, texts in an attempt to make it easier to convert the pagans to Christianity that he became, really sort of had this role of uh, Satan thrust upon him, which is why his deeds get progressively worse uh, until it finally reaches a climax in him killing Baldur and him getting a sort of like eternal punishment and just the very idea of like, you've crossed a line and you're now going to get punished and tortured forever sounds way more Christian than a Norse pagan to me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, their idea of death seems to actually, even the most negative iterations of it seems to be, you're dead, you're bored, you're cold and hungry forever. Which, if you think about it, considering the environment that they would have been living in, that actually would be probably just about the worst thing that you could think of happening forever. Um, You know, whereas if you, you know, if you die gloriously, you get to basically hang out and feast and always have plenty of food and always be comfortable forever. It's, it really makes a lot of sense in that cultural context. Um, oh, so hey, let's, let's, let's talk about the actual, like, Norse version of, of Hela. Okay. And, and that whole vibe. Because speaking of body horror. She's spooky. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something that they did not even attempt to bring into the MCU. They didn't even reference. Sometimes the comics try to bring it up with her. But um, the mythological Hela is, it's unclear how exactly the division is made, but she is quite literally half dead. Half of her body is a youthful maiden. The other half is a rotting corpse. And sometimes this is represented as being a vertical split with one half of, with one side of her face being, you know, beautiful and lively and all that. And the other side being a rotting corpse, um, a little bit like uh, Mazikeen in the Sandman comics, except not nearly as proud of it. Um, Although there's other versions of it that, and, you know, I say this based purely on a gut feeling, just because this almost, this feels more like the kind of thing that makes sense in like an ancient mythology context. But this is really just me saying that I feel like this makes more sense. I always like the interpretation, if only because it has much more of like, much more of like a creeping horror aspect. I always liked the versions where it's from the waist down that she's dead. Mm -hmm. And the idea that at first you think that maybe she's just beautiful and disabled or something. And then, you know, somebody helps her up you know one of her retainers or something helps her walk up towards somebody and she embraces them and like her leg bumps against you and you look down and it's like her leg is just disgusting and decaying. I mean yeah it's a very it would certainly be like a perversion of the expectation of a young beautiful maiden and like yeah that that actually seemed I mean that if anything considering that they didn't have like a whole memento mori, you know, beauty always always dies and decays thing going on like a lot of like the more southerly parts of Europe did. It actually like if you want to think about it like from that angle, it does have a very different connotation the idea of 
you know, subverted motherhood and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, you know, she would never be, I mean, technically you could do that with the vertical thing, but part of it is just, it's hard for, like, I've never seen any ancient iconography of her that uses the vertical split thing. I think that that's probably something that's a little bit easier for us to think of nowadays. I would love to see like more uh, artist depictions of her though. Have it be like, uh, her front face seen you uh, is the alive part and the back of her head is just completely rotted out like a skull. Oh, that, oh man. Okay, that also feels very resonant with like, because I mean, how many like fair folk, there, aren't there like certain types of like creepy fairy ladies where like they have hollow backs or whatever? I think so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah or something like, you know, you... Or, you know, you try to run your hand through her hair, but then you, like, underneath her head, you find the cavity in the, the, in the uh. back of her neck that, like, <laughs> extends through the, the rest of her body. Something like that. So, in a very poor attempt to give this some coherence to our original show's theme, uh, we have some thoughts to compare uh, some MCU characters to classic horror monsters all right well um i mean for one thing now that i think about it even if it's a different sort of perverse relationship i mean let's let's talk about the children of thanos as like renfield and brides of dracula oh yeah yeah i mean especially considering that um the way that, I mean, when most people now think of the Renfield character, they don't tend to think of, you know, the guy who was already in an asylum for unrelated reasons, like he is in the book. They tend to think of him as, you know, the the most famous version, the, the 1931 Dra- version of Dracula. I mean, it actually has him take Jonathan Harker's place in the beginning as the one who's sent out to do the real estate deal with Dracula in Transylvania. Except unlike Harker, who's traumatized but and very ill but still himself, the ordeal drives Renfield completely insane, and that's how he ends up, the you know basically enthralled to Dracula. And I mean, I I guess there's definitely a little bit of an overlap there with like you know the whole Thanos mo there, mm-hmm. and for that matter, the ambiguity of how the brides are actually related to him and all that. So we've we've got that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hulk's obviously a Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, clearly. Thing like, like, like. I mean, even if it technically, I guess you could say, plays out more like a werewolf story. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that the idea, like the original idea for the character, was basically Jekyll and Hyde, but a superhero. But as it plays out, it's a lot more like the, like the way that the Wolfman situation tends to play out in movies. What was yours? Because you had Oh, one. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking of the character of, is it pronounced Caesar or Cesare? Um, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually not sure. I've, ever since I heard how they pronounced um, Cesara Borgia's name on, on the Borgia's uh, suit, um, 
series. They use this incredibly British pronunciation of Chessery, and that's kind of how I've always wanted to think of the character in Caligari ever since, just because that's such a weirdly whimsical sounding pronunciation. <laughs> and it kind of seems like it would fit for that movie. All right. Well, in that case, I think there is a lot of good comparisons that can be drawn between Chessery and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari to The Winter Soldier. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. That is... That's a deep cut, and I'm I'm actually surprised I never thought about that. But you are absolutely right. Both were young men who were basically taken in and transformed into weapons against their will, where they exist solely to murder people according to their master. And the only the only real difference is uh, with Bucky, you do see his origin story. You do see the life he had before he was taken in, and thus you get much more of a human side to him. But the tragedy of Cesare is that you don't get that. You literally have no idea who he was before he was taken by Dr. Caligari, and that's what makes him come off as far more of a monstrous figure. And you know what? While we're at it, to paraphrase the Beetlejuice musical, I'm just going to say it. Fuck the framing story. Added. <laughs> To the cabinet of Dr. Caligari because you know what? That is literally there because they didn't want people questioning authority. Mm-hmm. The entire like like her making the um her making the winter soldier comparison is really apt because as it was originally pitched, the idea, the entire idea of that movie was in fact supposed to be an allegory particularly in the, given when it was made, although this is, gets a really haunting view when you consider what was going on there only like 15 years later, it was specifically supposed to be an allegory about how young men of fighting age in particular are taken in by the government and brainwashed into being killing machines for them. And basically, as far as I understand, the studio higher-ups picked up on this allegory, and that's why we have the whole insane asylum framing story to it, where it becomes actually like the narrator having paranoid fantasies about his seemingly well-meaning doctor. And of course, I had to find that out from reading uh, the book From Caligari to Hitler in my college's library, but uh, when I was we were first shown that movie in film school, I... Uh, our teacher only mentioned that, oh, and by the way, this is one of the first movies to have a twist ending. Yeah. And I mean, and it really is like it, like if you think about, but it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's, it's the first movie to have a twist ending the same way that Avatar was the first movie to use mocap that extensively. And like that integrated (laughs) for more than one character. It's like, yeah, it did it, but, but at what cost? (laughs) Well, actually, you know what? You know what? On the other hand, didn't somebody do the math and there's like, there are like 47 fix for James Cameron's Avatar or something I like think that so. on, on AO3. It's one of the most successful movies ever made and it has a shockingly low like it, fandom interaction. Yeah, it's fascinating because it just does not have any cultural relevance. Literally the only thing I ever hear about it nowadays, other than finding out that I guess apparently there might be sequels still, maybe, I don't know, is I know that I've seen a lot of people commenting that apparently the Passage to Pandora ride at Disney World is very good. But it's funny because now I almost always see it in the sense of 
this is a really good ride because it really feels like, you know, it has a good sense of like payoff and everything. And it doesn't feel like it's using the simulation technology just to replace what you could do on a normal dark ride. But it's usually with the addition of, and I've never seen this movie and I still enjoy the ride. <laughs> but oh my God, the, 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 the Chessery, uh, winter soldier thing that is incredible i it, it makes such perfect sense and i had never thought of that before i have actually been considered uh working on that into a mini episode of uh my subtleties for chumps youtube channel where i have this like a little side project called the other side of the reel where i take two movies and compare uh, they're different themes, even though they may seem completely different. They do have like some overlap and just like they ask the same question, but answer it very differently. And I was thinking for like the minisodes to focus more on specific characters. And I just thought that Bucky and Cesare are just such an interesting duo of like, there's so many, uh, there's so much connective tissue between them. You could also do a really interesting like faux poster riffing on yeah I'm, on that i'm gonna call the episode the soldier in the cabinet but you know i'm thinking yeah but i'm thinking about like you know that that really famous like painting poster of the mm, shot of him as he's mm-hmm. walking across like the really crooked roofs. and that and granted it was only for a scene but for all the promos uh it comes right down to the fact that bucky's rocking the cesare expressionist eyeshadow yeah there's there <laughs> i was actually thinking that the whole time too um okay how about white vision and uh false maria Ooh. <laughs> we're, we're getting all like we're getting all german expressionist up in here now but yeah yeah the 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 maria robot in metropolis that is specifically constructed to look like someone's loved one hmm. while fucking up everyone's lives <laughs> that's a much more shallow comparison but it's um i i mean i i I feel like it still stands. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember actually really horrifying a few people on uh, Tumblr several years ago because they were like, you're not allowed to compare these things. But I, I pointed out how much the whole... Um, Oh, well, you know what? Let's, let's t- we can actually circle back on this just a tiny bit by pointing out that the, that uh, Freighter's dead mother, that there was this love triangle over was named Hell. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I managed to piss a bunch of people off on Tumblr because I compared it to the whole Marnie situation in Repo, the genetic opera, and they were like, "You are not allowed to compare Metropolis to Repo, the, <laughs> the genetic opera." But you know what? You know what? Then maybe they shouldn't have had a woman who died seventeen years ago hanging over the entire goddamn plot like that, complete with, in one way or another, basically trying to bring her back even if it's much more metaphorical with what they do with giving shiloh her clothes and all that um and so uh i i'm a huge bride of frankenstein fan and even if that's not even if this isn't actually the point of the movie although um the movie the bride the one with sting in it i guess which also allows us to circle back and make more dune jokes um this one did actually bring up the the question of it, but you know, I, I do think that that 
much like how they ended up kind of handling a lot of Sylvie's, uh, you know, a lot of Sylvie's arc in this, it really does raise the question of being a woman and finding out that you exist entirely just as a female variation on, <laughs> on a male character. And the, and like the general identity horror that that brings with it. Although even if they don't really get a chance to ever address that in the movie, because um, the bride only has about what, 10 minutes of screen time, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, also that movie is incredibly gay. Which Very gay. It's, it's, it is unbelievably gay. And if you've ever watched it and picked up on that, that is entirely intentional you know, if, if it ever struck you as like, hmm, it does, it, it, this really seems like an old queen showing up on a young man's doorstep <laughs> and just being like, hey, hey, do you want to go illicitly create life without the involvement of a woman? <laughs> that is exactly, that is exactly what this movie is about. It is, that is completely intentional. That was, it was directed in, it was written in. It's actually really shocking that they got away with this. And you know what? I love Dr. Pretorius and I think he needs to get more respect as a horror movie character. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, <laughs> I love this guy. I want to see more of him on like universal horror merch. I, I'm absolutely shocked that they haven't merchandised the fuck out of That's My Only Weakness. Yeah, come to think of it, I I know there has to be at least one documentary about like the history of LGBT community and horror films, and yeah, he really isn't mentioned like that. Yeah, no, and that's and that's the thing, and I know that like now I've I have seen the occasional criticism talking about him as like a bad stereotype or whatever, but the thing is, is that you have to keep in mind he was created and acted by gay men like mm. like james whale the director was gay ernest thesiger who played him was gay and this was during like the start of the Hayes code too yeah no james whale specifically told him to play dr pretorius as and this is very close to a quote i'm, I'm paraphrasing from memory but it's almost exactly this phrasing as a caricature of a bitchy aging homosexual and you know what i I love that in this context. I, 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 I love that his entire character in this is to show up just as Dr. Frankenstein is thinking like, okay, that was a bad idea. I'm going to settle down and get married and have a normal life. And he's just like, ding dong, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I gave him completely the wrong sort of camp voice on that. No, I'm so sorry. No, I'm that's now, almost literally what I'm happens. I'm now imagining Dr. Praetorius show up with a chainsaw and shout, gay marriage! Just like <laughs> okay, this is the kind of thing that, like, I don't intend to go in there, but I'm just imagining that if we ever do, like, a cumulative poster for, like, the first season of this, it really has to be almost like a dogs playing poker thing, and we have to have Dr. Pretorius sitting at the table. <laughs> just because... <laughs> just, like, I'm sorry, he is now an on he is now an honorary 
he is now an honorary burden with glorious podcast character you know what guys this this is now i you know what i i'm sorry i know you guys like tuned in to like for like loki purposes this is now a dr pretorius podcast um <laughs> you know what him not being included is the reason why the dark universe failed where <laughs> is my dr pretorius movie <laughs> I want my Dr. Pretorius movie. I, I'm, I, we, somebody call someone who works at Universal Studios for Halloween Horror Nights. I, I need my Dr. Pretorius origin story. You know what? At this point, screw everything about, you know, Dumbledore's thwarted gay love or whatever. J.K. Rowling's a turf. I don't care about that anymore. I want Dr. Pretorius's big gay horror movie. <laughs> I want Dr. Pretorius origins. And I know that there's a lot of stuff that gets that gets talked about as like a lot of this just being soaked into the fabric of the movie. Um, however, on the other hand, like, you know, there, I, I've seen a lot of um, critiques when you have that subtext in mind pointing out that the monster refers to both the um, both the old hermit in the in the woods and the bride as friend. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, ultimately, if you really think about it, even if he's actually there to defy the will of God and and like do horrible things, what what is this movie except what is this movie but everybody being too straight for Dr. Pretorius? The real monster is heteronormativity. You know, apparently there's actually a sequel novel that somebody did that is quite literally... After the lab explosion, the bride and Dr. Pretorius survive and he like takes her off to like Weimar, Germany and like raises her to be an independent woman. And you know what? I love that concept. Yes. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. And you know what? I like that so much more than the, than the haunted house that they're doing right now, which as cool as the idea of the bride of Frankenstein turning out to be a brilliant mad scientist herself is, I think they're really wasting it on the idea that she decided five minutes later that she actually was in love with the creature I, I mean, I personally, I now just love the idea of, you know, them just, you know, of Pretorius just running off and, and, you know, and basically just mentoring her somewhere else. You know, that that is the coolest idea I've ever heard. But you know what? If you're going to have her doing the whole uh, the whole mad scientist thing, I always thought that it would be more interesting if, you know, if considering the ambiguity of that ending and how loose it how loose the continuity is in those movies you know what i thought it would have been cool if maybe it involved her actually resurrecting elizabeth because there's not really much of a chance that elizabeth might not have been injured in the the lab collapse as well and if it and you know what i don't care how girl bossy this is (laughs) i like the idea of it being like a you know taking revenge on the men in their lives that brought them to this state sort of vibe but I still don't think that's ever going to be quite as cool as Dr. Pretorius takes the bride off to Weimar, Germany. <laughs> God. <laughs> no, I'm just... No, I could easily see her performing at the Kit Kat Club. <laughs> you know, considering Elsa Lanchester was a cabaret performer before oh she broke God. into film, like, that actually... Like, I've never heard it, but apparently you can still very easily find, like an album that she recorded in like the thirties of like English music. Well, I mean, so much of 
Hollywood horror movies were directly because of people fleeing Germany in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and, you know, not uh, within only a few years after that, uh, after that was made, um, Conrad Veidt, who was uh, Chessery, he actually, um, he was one of the people that, that fled Germany, and it was, um, and he wasn't Jewish, he was actually Lutheran, but his wife was. And he intentionally blacklisted himself by uh, by putting himself down as Jewish on like his exit visa, basically. And um, and then I guess the really cool punchline to that is, is that then once he was in Hollywood, he got almost immediately typecast as playing Nazi villains. But he was but he was fine with that because it allowed him to show how horrible they were being. He he's the main Nazi officer in um, Casablanca. And it's also doubly hilarious that. He played arguably uh, Tumblr's first boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know what? And it's I get... always monster fucker this, monster fucker that. But that's who I immediately think of. Of your, this ain't your mama's monster fucker. It's your grandmama's monster fucker. So much as he can even be considered a monster for fucking. I mean, he's, <laughs> he, he's kind of in that gray area, you know, like you know how. I, I've never, because, you know, when you look at the discourse over it, sometimes it's, it, it seems to be one of two extremes. Oh, that looks too human. You call yourself a monster fucker? Or alternatively, oh, I don't care how human that looks. You're a monster fucker. <laughs> <laughs> In, like, utter disdain. And it's like, it's one or the other of those. Like, um, <laughs> But we would not have uh, the entire 80s goth scene the way it is without Cesare, and we owe the German Expressionist a huge debt for that. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? And for that matter, while we're talking about extremely gay movies, as I don't actually know if um, I don't actually know if Conrad Veidt was bisexual or not, but we do know that he was in a couple of the very first movies to actually depict. Um, gay relationships as being healthy and normal. Oh, that's right. Well, he was in one of them that, that like, it definitely had, um, it definitely had a tragic ending, but it was made, but the entire message of it was, this is only tragic because society mm. makes it so, which to be honest, in, tw- in 1919 was a much less played out theme to put oh, in a movie. Yeah. Like, like, you know, as much as nowadays it would just kind of be like, okay, cool, but did they have to die to make mm-hmm. this point? At the time, that was an incredible point to make. He, he was in a couple of movies, I think, that were made with the Hirschfeld Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, who, for those of you listening, when they talk about the Nazi book burnings... That's, that's who they're talking about. The, the, um, the Hirschfeld Institute had a lot of queer history, and uh, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld was working a lot on uh, normalizing acceptance of... Um, basically all kinds of queerness, like including trans people that gets overlooked a lot in this, but he was, um, he was one of the first people to argue that trans people should be allowed to express their gender freely. It's no hyperbole when I say that the Nazi book burnings of, uh, that amount of LGBT research is akin to the burning of a library of Alexandria in terms of just how much, uh, knowledge, uh, was lost. Yeah, it's when when people talk about book burnings, you need to remember that that was what was being burned, which I know was kind of a, a grim segue to make on this. But at the same time, like, 
I, I hate to put it as like a, that, you know, the more, you know, segment, but that, that is really important to know mm-hmm. for that kind of thing. But yeah, he was, he was involved in a couple of movies with that. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think, I, I think they recently found one that uh, didn't have the tragic ending either. It, oh. it had the, it had the idea that, you know, if you allow people to express themselves freely, they, they, you know, yeah. they, they get to leave long, happy lives. And Conrad Veidt was arguably one of the first actors to have the Tumblr Marvel villain boyfriend effect of girls just being absolutely adoring of his character of like, yeah, he looks freaky, but in kind of a hot way. And he's really tortured and like, maybe he just needs someone to love him. I mean, as much as everybody likes to bring up the fact of like, did you know that the Joker was based on one of his characters? Here's the thing. The Joker was only visually based on that character because, um, Gwynplaine in The Man Who Laughs is actually the hero of the movie. He is just an extremely sympathetic, lovable character who doesn't want to hurt anyone. Oh, yeah, no. he It's not his fault that he had his face carved up when he was a kid to look like that. But now it's funny that you say that, considering that, um, that The Man Who Laughs also features what I would probably consider, even if he is even if he's not actually a monster, but she certainly likes to think of him that way. It includes probably the first monster fucker rep- representation in film because uh, Duchess Josiana is all over that specifically because he's disfigured. Yes. <laughs> Which is really interesting because that's probably one of the two big roles that we most know Oga Baklanova for. And her other most famous role is in Freaks where she plays Cleopatra, who is the exact opposite that's right. Oh my God, the range. Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I actually saw something on TV tropes once pointing out that even if both characters are really conniving and vampy, if you were to switch their places, everything would have ended up okay. I mean, maybe not entirely okay because the fact is is that you know Hans and in, in Freaks still you know is clearly happier and better suited to being with uh, Frida, but at the same time. You know, there, there wouldn't have been any plans to kill him for his money because she would have been like, oh, man, weird boyfriend. Awesome. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if, if you had Cleopatra just, you know, looking at Gwenplaine and being like, Ugh, you know, and, and it's like, you know what? She would have just left him alone. Mm-hmm. Although that version of the story has a happy ending. So, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not that. I mean, it, 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 the book ends horribly, of course. You know, it's a Victor Hugo joint. But, <laughs> but the movie ends. The movie has a happy ending. So, Megan, do you have any final Halloween thoughts? Well, I mean, I do think that we might have missed the single most obvious MCU classic horror comparison. How have we not talked about Doctor Doom and the Phantom of the Opera yet? Oh. I mean, at least for the sake of, like, the shallow comparison there. Mm Mm-hmm. You know... Especially considering how much the comics have, in the last 25 years or so especially, really striven to make Doom kind of like a sexy, tortured, romantic figure. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. It happened really gradually. Really gradually. And for that matter, how disfigured Doom is seems to really vary. (laughs) Because, as has been commented several times, it seems to vary between... He just has a little mark on his face and he's just that vain. 
Or he used to have the little mark on his face, but he was so desperate to hide it that he put the metal mask on his face while it was still hot and scarred himself for real. On a scale of Gerard Butler to Robert England, how disfigured is he? The most recent iteration of Secret Wars did have probably the most heavily disfigured Doom we've seen. Although, at the same time, I've seen a lot of people pointing out that considering that he had like phenomenal cosmic powers in that version, he probably, what we were seeing might have even been a projection beyond the idea of him having like regular burn scarring or something and straight up into the, you know, feeling as though he can fix anything in the universe like this except for himself. And so when we see him, he looks that much more disgusting. Um, I feel okay using the word disgusting in this case because we were definitely in rotting corpse territory as opposed to disfigured human being territory. Um, Personally, I've always thought it's just kind of cool when you can see just a little bit of a hint of like burn scarring or something under there. Um, Especially like, I do think that the, I do think that the scarring himself in desperation to get the mask on, whether it was to hide a smaller scar or not thing is really compelling. Um, I do think it would be interesting given the Phantom of the Opera comparison, if they were to ever do like a, you know, another side universe reboot where it really was something he was born with and that contributed or or even something that he acquired in childhood due to the whole thing with his mom being a witch. Mm. and the whole trying to rescue her from hell thing several times. Because I think that's actually the most recent, and I'm pretty sure that's the current canon explanation for the putting on the mask while it was still hot, instead of it being something as foolish as putting it on too quickly when he wanted to cover up a very uh, superficial scar. The idea that he put it on basically because he thought that at least if he focused on the pain, he wouldn't be able to, he wouldn't, have to deal with the memory of his mother screaming which again that is an incredibly gothic horror trope now that you think about it i i really hope that eventually we get a really good mcu dr doom although i'm really afraid of the fact that he will almost certainly not be romani Mm. and that that idea bothers me especially because we already lost out on that with the maximoff twins um, but I guess, a, I guess a girl can hope. Give us Romani Dr. Doom. The one bright side is it's completely impossible for him to be played by Chris Pratt. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> well, I guess my, uh, my closing thought on this is that, you know what, now that I think about it, even though we haven't seen the end of his story yet, at least this part of it, considering that they've said that they really want Loki's character development to stick, it, you know what, it actually reminds me, even if the dysfunction is in a very different form, of an unsung surprisingly compassionate twist for a horror franchise to eventually take. And that was the fact that technically speaking, the original Psycho franchise ends with Norman Bates getting better and getting to have a nice life. (laughs) Which personally, I think is like the nicest thing they possibly could have done. 
Because but you can't sell that at Halloween Horror Nights. <laughs> I know, but you know what? If you spend that many movies building up the fact that this man was so badly abused that it basically caused him to develop a dissociative personality that is literally his own absorption of his abuser. If you spend that many movies doing that and you keep driving in that it's not his fault and he wants to get better, there comes a point when you really have to decide, are we going to keep doing this forever or are we going to actually let him get better? And you know what? I applaud whoever decided to make Psycho 4 for deciding to let him get better. And I genuinely mean that. I think it's really sweet and really meaningful that at the end of that franchise, Norman Bates, possibly like the biggest proto-slasher in film, very clearly a victim of circumstance, gets to literally light his fucking house on fire and drive away with his pregnant girlfriend listening to what he believes to be the sounds of his abusive mother, screaming for him to come rescue her in the fire and just driving away and leaving her to die. And you know what? That's actually a happy ending. As he drives away, the screams start receding into the distance as though he actually did leave her behind there. He's going to be okay, guys. (laughs) And I think that that is like the best ending you can actually give that kind of character. And it takes balls honestly i i'm really impressed that they did that and so this is my way of saying that you know what don't complain about the fact that they decided to like let loki move on past this because all things considered he's way less screwed up than norman bates that he is (laughs) (laughs) but more importantly if you're listening to the end of this episode That also means somehow you survived this and you're going to be okay. And you can rejoin us in a couple of weeks when we finally get back on schedule and finally get around to watching Thor Ragnarok, except with in true horror movie fashion, the lingering knowledge that we will not have anything else to watch after that. So we might be looking at this for a long, long time. (laughs) Till then.